0: Is there somebody out there maybe a little scared of Niebuhr? Coming up on Love Thy Niebuhr.
1: You're listening to the Love Thy Niebuhr podcast. Your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Gold Niebuhr.
0: hello and welcome back to another episode of the love Dying you podcast the only podcast on the world wide web that is completely resolutely adoringly dedicated to the theology ethics and political philosophy of reinhold the illest realist Niebuhr. i'm cliff bailey and i'm joined as always with our co hosts zach narrison aaron duncan Uh, We have an insane October ahead of us, full of spooks and scare zombies and werewolves, scary theologians like the two Johns, John Milbank and John Weatherly, terrifying academics like Robin Lovin and Melvin Rogers. Maximum Niebuhr. But today we have a very spooktacular guest, uh, Dr. Joseph Steeb. Joseph is Assistant Professor of National Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval War College. He is author of The Regime Change Consensus, Iraq and American Politics, 1990 to 2003. You can find it on Amazon or you can order it at about any local bookstore. He has published many articles uh, in the International History Review, War on the Rocks, The Washington Post, Foreign Policy, among many other uh, publications, uh, too many to list. Joseph, what a pleasure. Welcome.
2: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: Now, for our audience, we came across Joseph through a mutual friend. Uh, you may know him, Mr. Eli Valentin. Uh, but Eli posted uh, one of Joseph's articles and added Love Thy Neighbor. We read it, loved it, so we thought we'd get Joseph on. But his article is a response to a recently published book by Dr. Samuel Moyne. Uh, in short, Moyne is uh, is a liberal trying to liberate liberalism from its pessimistic past. And he is known around these Parts, uh, the neighborhood, if you will, uh, for gathering Niebuhr up into a group for whom he targets many of his critiques, specifically on Cold War liberalism. Um, we've had some run-ins uh, with some of uh, Moyne's disciples on the Twitter machine, but uh, Joseph's article is a very thoughtful response to Moyne's most recent uh, work, it just came out in August, and it's called Liberalism Against Itself, uh, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times. And Joseph's responding article is appropriately named Two Cheers for the Cold War Liberals. You can find it on War on the Rock's website. Now, before we get started, I want to say uh, real quick to our audience, if you're liking what you're hearing, give us a couple bucks on our Twitter slash X profile. The money just goes toward our streaming Slash distribution service. You can find uh, the tip icon in the upper right hand of our upper right hand corner of our profile, and that's at Love Thy Neighbor. Uh, just buy us a cup of coffee or something if you're if you're feeling generous today. Okay, now let's get to it. The way this is going to work is we've all read Joseph's article, come up with some questions for him. So Zach will start, uh, then I'll go, then Aaron, and around we'll go for about an hour, and then we'll wrap up. So Zach, take it away. My favorite question to ask. Always, because it seems like there's always some really good stories. Is
1: uh, uh, why why Niebuhr, right? It, you said that you're a fan of Niebuhr, and obviously you write about him in the article. But what kind of got you uh, down that down that path?
2: So I think I came to reading Niebuhr in graduate school at UNC Chapel Hill because um, I had I worked as a TA for Molly Worthing, who you guys might be familiar with. She's a historian of evangelicalism, fantastic historian who's mm-hmm. also written a lot on foreign policy. You know, I was a TA for her class on uh, US religious history. And, you know, that had some Niebuhr, I mean, I had heard of Niebuhr before, right, but never really read much of him. That class had some some readings from him, from the irony of American history. I thought it was interesting. I asked I asked her about it a little bit, and she kind of, you know, told me, here are some of the major texts you should read. So I started reading them, and I just thought that they were incredibly relevant to the scholarship I was doing at the time on the Iraq War. And, uh, you know, so much of the Iraq War discussion, as I was going through it in the 90s and 2000s, it just seemed to lack some of the realism and humility that I was seeing in Niebuhr. Hmm. Um, but on the other hand, as I was going through graduate school, I was also kind of having these arguments uh, with the left, both in a very personal sense, but also uh, intellectually, right? also kind of at the level of uh, scholarship on the Cold War, scholarship on um, US foreign policy in general. And so Niebuhr spoke to that as well. Uh, and then from there, you know, I, I read, I think, maybe three or four of his books, a number of his essays, and just always find him relevant to thinking about foreign policy and thinking about politics. Nice.
0: Now, um, as we said, Joseph, uh, this is a response that you're giving to Sam Moyne, and, uh, and you use, obviously, a healthy dose of Niebuhr to boost your side of things, and we like that. Um, but first, uh, why don't you just take a moment and set up the times for us, what, uh? what do the current discussions surrounding liberalism and foreign policy look like? And yeah. I guess more historically, how do we get here? How did we get here? And what kind of baggage are we kind of freighting in with some of these terms and positions?
2: So let me kind of point to two, I think key, key things are going on in the way people are debating liberalism today, especially when it comes to liberalism and foreign affairs, which is kind of my specialty. I think the first is, you know, is there such thing as a liberal international order, right? Is that a system of rules, institutions, and norms that actually kind of functions in the world that's capable of restraining superpower action or channeling superpower action? Uh, Or is it really just a cover for US hegemony, right? That's a key debate. Sam has weighed in on that debate uh, more on the latter side, right? That's mostly a cover for hegemony, right? It's not really a system that imposes any restraints.
0: And I'm sorry, and, and I'm when we say like a, an international structure or something like that, are we just talking kind of a balance of powers?
2: Well, it's more than a balance of power, right? So like a realist, you know, and Niebuhr was in some ways a realist uh, in the foreign policy scheme, but like a, a neo-realist like John Mearsheimer, he would say that uh, peace in the international system, stability only comes from balance of power, right? When the United States and the Soviet Union just don't think there's any advantage to be gained from offensive military action. Um, but liberals say that balance, or, you know, you can achieve stability through a balance of power, but you can also achieve it through spreading norms, right? Spreading liberal norms mm-hmm. through economic cooperation uh, that gives states an incentive to not go to war, right? Mm-hmm. Through uh, norms, institutions that kind of channel actions that create uh, ways to try to suss out debates, right? Or, or, or suss out disputes. So, you know, that Is that a kind of answer your question? Yeah.
0: yeah. So it's not just a balance of power, but it also comes kind of like with with an ideology of spreading uh, democracy or something like that.
2: So that's kind of the second big debate in liberalism that I wanted to point to, right? So the second big debate is, is liberalism something that has kind of inherent expansionist tendencies, right? Like a lot of people argue, well, the Iraq war is really a liberal war. It was about spreading democracy and human rights. In a very reckless way. So, you know, someone like Michael Doyle, he wrote a seminal article in the 80s. He argues this. um, You know, a lot of critics on the right argue it, kind of on the post liberal right, and a lot of critics on the left argue this. Um, And then other people argue, like G. John Eikenberry, probably the most famous liberal internationalist, that, you know, that's not inherent to liberalism, that there are more kind of restrained ways of thinking about a liberal international system that don't require you know, going overboard, that don't require just going on crusades to spread democracy.
0: That's interesting. So, like, I have heard the critique more from the Chinese perspective that the United States, its Christian roots is kind of make it lean more toward an evangelizing of democracy type of thing. And they'll say, Mm -hmm. you know, China builds walls in our history uh christianity spreads in its history and they'll make that kind of distinction
2: yeah which is incredibly self-serving china is one of the most expansionist powers. i mean it, it had a frontier; it's conquered untold peoples right i mean it is as expansionist as the united states is same thing is true for russia
0: they, they probably right? like to think of themselves <laughs> in that way but it's just that they claim their original like form of china is so vast that that, you know, we're just yeah. building a wall around Taiwan, you know, <laughs> which is ours to begin yes. with. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting so,
2: when you yeah. talk about sort of the religious roots of that liberal universalism. Uh, there's a fantastic book by Andrew Preston. It's called, I think it's called Sword of the Spirit, Shield of the Faith. And it's all about religion and how, how religion, especially Christianity, shapes the way the United States thinks about its role in the world. And, you know, he shows that the kind of Wilsonian liberal internationalism that was, you know, I don't think wilson was a democratic crusader right but a lot of people who believe the united states role is to make the world safer democracy were really building on very christian ideas or at least kind of mainline protestant ideas Mm.
0: and it's really hard to slip a piece of paper between like winthrop city on a hill type stuff which is in the roots man like literally uh and and the way the u.s has embraced its role in the world uh since world war ii
2: absolutely yep i don't think there's a Way to separate that lineage, yeah.
0: Uh, okay. So what? And I guess so. This is kind of the history of this, but yep. what's uh, so back to kind of the discussion of contemporary times? What kind of baggage then are people bringing into this discussion? And particularly from uh, Moyne's perspective, uh, and uh, what what's he? How is he trying to change the discussion?
2: So I think he's trying to do two things, right? And and they're actually I think a little bit contradictory. And the book doesn't really reconcile the two things, right? What he wants essentially, is liberal boldness at home and liberal restraint abroad. Hmm. right? So on one hand, he and critics like him fault someone like a Barack Obama or going for that Bill Clinton for being too cautious in the way they pursued reform, right? And they want the United States to move. You know, Moyne's very vague about it in the book, but he calls it sort of an emancipatory, uh, much more social democratic view of what the United States should be. Right. Mm -hmm. So he faults the Democratic Party at home for still being stuck in this Cold War liberal mindset where, you know, if you go too far in the direction of reform and restructuring, you're kind of slipping toward potential totalitarianism, right? So that Hayekian uh, declension, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what he wants at home. And then abroad, he wants much more restraint, right? He doesn't really think the liberal international order is a thing. He thinks the United States has used it to kind of impose hegemony in different parts of the world, to open up markets throughout the world. It's uh, kind of William Apple Williams critique redux, and you know his the lead thing for this is Iraq, right? Mm-hmm. Which in many ways was justified by universalistic liberal ideas, um, but to me those are contradictory, right? And I think that you know to kind of bring Niebuhr in. Niebuhr is the person who can help resolve those contradictions. Mm-hmm. But Moyne doesn't, right? I, I'm not. I, I don't think he even identifies them in the book. Although I'm sure he has them in mind separately.
0: It's interesting because a lot of the the things that um, maybe would give him more humility on the foreign policy international sphere, those things should apply also to at home as well. Is is that kind of what, what your take is as well? And the things that uh, maybe give us more mm-hmm. restraint here at home should maybe give us more restri- restraint abroad, or the, the things that kind of, uh, I don't know, I, I don't know if I'm making sense, yeah, but I know it's what you're more unified in the way we're seeing both uh, international and domestic yeah. policy.
2: Well, I think one of the key tensions that Niebuhr identified and that other realists like Morgenthau have identified is that, and this kind of could even speak to Mearsheimer, right, is that in the domestic political system, right, you're bounded by law. You are one community, right, a sovereign community but there is no government of governments in the international system, right? And so, you know, realists are often quite liberal at home because they would say, well, at home, we can pursue all kinds of different reforms, right? So John Mearsheimer is pretty liberal in his domestic political viewpoints. Uh, th- they say the international system is just fundamentally different. It's an anarchy. The rules are different. Power dictates much more than right or wrong. Right, and I think Niebuhr was sympathetic to that. He didn't think that you can do whatever you want internationally, but he acknowledged that you know it was a realm where beasts, beastly nations, horrible ideologies, uh, could run wild, right, and that you couldn't behave at home necessarily, uh, in this nice way that you can apply the nice way you behave at home to the international sphere.
0: Hmm. But again, like, and Niebuhr. Came just before, like true kind of globalization really came about, yeah. like especially yeah. like the market and trade packs and all that type of stuff. So, uh, y- your first question.
3: Oh yeah, so uh, I wanted to throw uh, a case study at you uh, because sure, yeah. I um you brought up Albright's uh, your 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 hesitation with this sort of uh, um, indispensable nation talk. Uh, of yep. certain, uh, you know, policymakers in the U.S. And, you know, funny enough, about four days ago on uh, September the 28th, President Biden gave a pretty impassioned speech uh, about defending and strengthening our democracy in op- opposition to, uh, you know, the MAGA movement. Um, it's a appeal for, like, isolation from you know, international uh, goals and conflicts. It's zeal for authoritarian leaders like, you know, Kim Jong-un and, Uh, victor orban um and in response you know president biden quoted albright you know calling america the indispensable nation so i have just two questions to you um number one do you think president biden is altering this because in his speech when he calls america an indispensable nation he's tying it purely into the economic factor a more material embedded uh set of relations between you know nations america is just so overwhelmingly rich and uh and its resources
0: it's that realistic is. as yeah. opposed to like a, an
3: ideal like yeah, an we ideal. have the best set of ideals like a democracy or liberal mm-hmm. uh hegemony um and then the other thing is um a more practical question about messaging for democrats I'm not saying you are a democrat yourself but um does this fall back on indispensable nation talk help hmm Or is it actually um, like given after 9-11, some some progressives and liberals were critiquing, you know, uh, conservative figures for like having this messianic complex of America um, and kind of really getting away from American exceptionalism. But now, you know, President Biden's using this. Is this needed in a time to bring people together or is it just um, a failed old um, idea that we're, we're running with?
2: it's interesting that's a really two really good set of questions um i think when it comes to biden's use of that term and his foreign policy in general you know i I don't like the term right but there is an element of truth to it there is a lot that doesn't happen in international system especially when it comes to resisting aggression that a lot that a lot will not happen without u.s action right doesn't mean we need to be a fan of it all the time Mm -hmm. um but i don't know if Europe and NATO would have had as strong as a response if they've had if the United States wasn't pushing them from a very, like, right? think about how Germany was kind of wavering, right, in the first yeah. couple of months after the invasion. Um, I always go back to the Balkans in the 1990s, which, of course, is incredibly relevant for Albright, right? The United States kind of, uh, I don't say allowed, but we'll say allowed, right? Allowed the Europeans to take the lead on the Balkan crisis and they utterly failed, right? Yeah. Absolutely failed. In fact, the peacekeepers probably made things worse. Uh, you know, we, we know that from Sobernica and then the United States had to step in and I, I think was pretty successful, actually, in in helping to resolve that conflict. And so I don't want to say there's an, no truth to that statement, but I think when Biden uses it, it's, it's important to notice the difference that he's talking about defending a circle or community of democratic nations or near democratic nations like Ukraine from authoritarian aggression. He's not talking about expansion. Right. And so the you know whole paradigm of the 1990s, especially under the Bush administration, was how do we expand the circle of democratic nations? Right. How we push back and kind of roll back authoritarianism. And that is a big reason why I think both, uh, you know, almost the entire Republican Party, but a significant chunk of Democrats and a significant chunk of liberals got on board with the Iraq war right, as a uh, expansionist pro- project not of seizing territory from the Amer- for, for the Americans the way that Russia's trying to seize territory, mm-hmm. right? But in spreading that community of nations. So I think that's an important difference. It's kind of a lowering of liberal ambitions, right? But it's probably a, it's a chastening, right? It's probably a necessary adjustment of what he's talking about. And then for the messaging for Democrats, you know, I, I don't know how much of a difference it's, that's really making. Um, you know, I, I don't wanna to wade too much into domestic politics, but I, Biden does seem kind of stuck at a certain rating, right? And I think polls show that most Americans are, are pretty supportive of what he's doing in Ukraine. I personally find the message of, you know, resisting authoritarianism abroad and resisting at home and seeing these as linked problems is pretty appealing. But on the other hand, I think a lot of Americans, especially since Iraq and Afghanistan, are very wary of that indispensable nation talk right they, mm-hmm. they've seen where some of that thinking has gotten us and you know that imposes severe limits on what Biden can do right? yeah he's in russia or whatever right?
0: which is that or which like, is oh. well, i guess what really uh makes his um approach to ukraine in this very measured hands-off but helping type of way yeah really important Because we know people, Americans, voters are still very sensitive to uh, the Bush, um, you know, uh, the Bush doctrine, or I guess like the the Bush um, desire to spread that democracy in a kind of messianic type of way. But also, we have this problem at home, where people are starting to uh, to to uh, waver on the whole idea of democracy and yeah. and um, and I've even heard Biden talk this way and I think I, I brought this up on a uh, somewhat recent um, episode. But depending on what where China goes, I mean, it's uh, economically there is there is uh, a fear I think that Biden has that one day we're going to wake up and the richest country in the world. Is no longer capitalist democratic
1: mm-hmm. country,
0: and what does that do to the messaging and the ideology that we, or the the kind of moral uh, stance that we hold? Yeah. Um. And <clears throat> when we aren't the best anymore, it, are these things still uh worth fighting for, worth spreading, uh, or or however you want to put that? I guess um so i and and that's going to there's got to be a fear that you know okay do we need to become more autocratic to or become more authoritarian to compete with china uh or something like that so he's probably anticipating some future discussions i don't know but but yeah it, it, it it i see them linked and i appreciate that messaging because it's, I think it's realistic, too. Well, I guess um,
3: the question becomes, like, where is the Niebuhrian compromise? As, you know, uh, Steve has uh, suggested, you know, we have to, as Niebuhrs... Joseph. Joseph, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I got oh, this so... I just, oh, I just, like, thought of Steve and Neve, and <laughs> they just, just completely <laughs> threw me off. I'm so sorry. That's right. I guess the question uh, becomes, where are the limits of what we're willing to compromise on like in terms of our ideals and how does neighbor fit into that mm-hmm. so my question then becomes to joseph um in your wisdom and estimation like what how, what what are the the limits that we should be willing to compromise when we go back and, and look at cold war liberals like neighbor with, in terms of Cold
2: War liberals, like neighbor? Oh, yeah. yeah.
3: Okay. So, like in in the coming challenges and crises we're facing, what what are what should we what should we, we uh, what should we not be willing to compromise on?
2: Hmm. I would, yeah. I mean, do you mean compromises in kind of say we will defend this aspect of Cold War liberals
3: or democracy or ideals, or ideals like that, and not become like you know Cliff said authoritarian maybe to meet the challenges of a growing economy like China.
2: Yeah, well that so that's interesting because I think that one thing I like about the Cold War liberals, and I, I I brought it up more in my draft of this article than what eventually became because the draft was like twice as long, as tends mm-hmm. to be the case, right? And you know, one thing I think that one kind of missed, or or he just dismisses it and doesn't really um appreciate this, right? Is that the liberals were rea- the Cold War liberals were reacting not just to the Soviet threat, but to the fact that they had been tempted into sympathy with the, with the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s, right? I mean, you guys know this better than I do kind of a Niebuhr's intellectual evolution, but that's all over the Cold War liberals, right? So many of them had been kind of wrapped up. Think about Walter Lippman. I'm not sure he was a liberal, but he certainly was, had his same evolutionary uh, intellectual trajectory, mm-hmm. right? That they had kind of believed that, yes, you can program society, right? You can program mm-hmm. human beings. Uh, that maybe the Soviet Union was the wave of the future, especially when the United States was kind of muddling through the Great Depression. And when they saw what the Soviet Union really was, right, as more and more evidence came out uh, about the nature of that system, I think that they were chastened and far more self-introspective. And that's a great strength of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Right. And so maybe they overreacted. I think that's where Moyne is useful, right? He shows where they kind of, you know, for example, abandon the idea of collective moral projects, hmm. right, I think he's, that's totally valid critique. I think it's set up the country for kind of a neoliberal shift that I, I also think was pretty harmful. Um, but on the other hand, right, that kind of introspection, I think, is what has helped keep American liberalism strong, right, that we acknowledge that, you know, too much concentration of power in the hands of people who believe they are experts who believe they can direct society in a programmatic way is is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it, it was a correction, I think, a necessary correction, especially in context, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think there's a tendency among academics to really kind of say, yeah, Soviet Union was not really that bad. Mm-hmm. Right? I think it was a horrible, monstrous, aggressive totalitarian system. Mm-hmm. And I think the Cold War people saw that quite clearly. I don't think it justified doing anything in response, right? And I think that's where Niebuhr is another great source to draw on, because he criticized he wasn't even support of the if I remember correctly. I don't think he even supported the Korean War. Uh, he definitely didn't support the Vietnam War, right? And right. yeah, he he basically he, just, he didn't think that the Cold War gave us carte blanche to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a meandering response. I hope that gets at some of what you were. I see what
3: you're at. saying, and I yeah yeah I appreciate the response. Yeah. So,
1: I I wanted to, as we were kind of talking about this stuff, I wanted to jump over to this kind of. I had a question that kept popping into my mind as I was looking at this. You have this place where you kind of try to draw like um, a place uh, or a connection between you and Moyne and and try to kind of um, point to a, co- a common place where maybe criticism should have taken place. You say, after all, not only neoconservatives, but many liberals endorsed the Iraq war on the grounds that the United States had the right, if not the duty, to control global affairs and alter the course of history. And the thing I kept thinking of, as I read this book recently by Peter Zihan. I don't know if you've had a chance to read any of his stuff, but he makes uh, an argument that a bunch of different arguments in the book. but one of the things he brings up over and over and over again is that this messianism that is obviously has had consequences in the Iraq war and other interventions that were clearly not correct or not good are kind of a necessary byproduct of um, um basically he says that like, our belief that we need to police the world has actually benefited um, many nations. Like you could, he, he even brings up China over and over and over again. And basically one of his, the central parts of his argument is that um, it has to do with our desire to uh, police global shipping lanes. Yeah. And so um, that that's one of the things that kind of comes up on our, this is kind of one of those things that comes up on our, our podcast all the time. This desire to like dispel illusion versus what are the necessary illusions. Um, and I just wonder if you had any comment on that that perspective, that kind of reversal, to look at that and say, okay, this is a ne- this is an unfortunate but necessary byproduct, but not a um, but but it still creates a greater um, global system. Does that make sense? Yeah,
2: I think that's the key question, right? Like that that you know is something like the Iraq War just a necessary sort of inevitable byproduct of a liberal notion of what the United States should be in the should what their
1: role should be in the world is that kind of yeah well or like we well, like for instance like the world overall i mean there are these terrible exceptions but for instance he highlights china a lot to say that basically their economy would not survive without us basically policing their shipping lanes oh yeah and, and it's our own messianism our own belief that we need to police the world that ultimately benefits everyone tremendously and that actually he sees as one of the greatest perils to our global order currently is the fact that we're kind of Becoming disinterested in that. And it could have terrible consequences for quite a few countries because uh, other countries will take advantage of that um, breakdown.
2: Yeah, I guess it's a question of so it's two things, right? One is a question of can you get the United States playing that key role in maintaining the openness of the international system, which is not something that just happens. Yeah. Right? I think that's kind of the big point. Uh, You know, I, I saw an article the other day that was okay, so, you know, if the U.S. liberal liberal international order is not a thing, right, if the United States withdraws from that role, who fills the vacuum? And then what does the system look like in that place, right? Well, it probably doesn't look like the openness that we have. Um,
1: well, he describes it as piracy.
2: Sure, I mean, you would absolutely have returned to that, but it, it wouldn't, you know, it would be the piracy of states much yeah. more than be the problem of you know, Somali, uh, Somalis on little boats, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think about that a lot. Um, and I think about the fact that you know defend uh, this is sort of an neborian point right that defending that role often requires you to do morally compromising things right yeah. it requires you to you know ally with dictators at times right so you know what what was the us best option in the middle east vis-a-vis a country like saudi arabia or egypt during the cold right. war or today mm-hmm. right is that country are those countries going to become liberal democracies anytime soon Right. I I think yeah. now we say no. Right. And so how do we act toward those countries? Do we just take a purely moral standpoint towards them and lose influence, right? And kind of lose key strategic access right to resources from mm-hmm. certain parts of the world and push them into the camp of Russia or China, who also who don't care about liberalism, right? You have a pretty ruthless behavior over, overseas. You know, these are questions we wrestled with in the cold war, and we still wrestle with today. I think is a good guide to those, you know, in that he recognizes that power is the corner of the realm, the international system. Uh, you can build institutions, you can build norms, but you shouldn't forget that ultimately power is going to dictate what happens.
1: Well, uh, and sorry, yeah, well, I was just gonna say, and Zion, one of his points is that basically, as he sees it, it was always the it was always a part of the like agreed upon plan that basically the U S loses like loses in terms of, we have to pour a bunch of money into uh, policing. Yeah. But people kind of submit to that order because it brings greater flourishing to their um, economies. Um, that's a simplification of what he says, but it, it that's, he, he talks about the treaties following yep. falling war Two, And yeah.
2: I tend to agree with all of that. Right. No yeah. question. I, I always just kind of wonder how do you get the United States to commit to that role? in a realistic way that doesn't have a messianic component to it. You know, yeah. I always go back to the, uh, Arthur Vandenberg, right. Who was this isolationist Senator in the thirties. And then he became a major kind of cold war internationalist in the forties and fifties. You know, he, he said, we got to scare the hell out of the American people, right. To, to sell the Truman doctrine and to yeah. sell rearmament. And I was just going to wonder, is that true? Right. Do you need to overhype threats to, uh, mm-hmm. Do you need to create a messianic self-conception to have this role, right? I really don't know. And it speaks to that question about the indispensable nation. Um, It it may be politically necessary, right? I think Niebuhr was brilliant at kind of exposing the pitfalls of that Mm -hmm. way of thinking.
0: And, And I think that that's the important part that Niebuhr brings out. So he not only says like, okay, necessary illusion is a thing. Like we might have to have some necessary illusions In our calculations and how and how uh, we conduct ourselves on the world stage and domestically, Um, but we also have to be able to pinpoint the pitfalls, be able to recognize where that gets us into trouble. So, uh, you know, Basavich, we we had Basavich on uh, back in July, yeah, and and his big critique is that we carried a lot of these Cold War. Manichaean type of ideologies into iraq so when 9 11 happens you have a bunch of cold warriors in the cabinet um, that bush is looking to for direction um and in the in the west wing and uh and bush just necessarily like easily slips back into the cold war language to address this particular interest which Going into that, if you're truly neburian you need to recognize where the necessary illusion lies and what are the pitfalls and how close do we get to that ledge in doing this type of thing. Bush might have thought, you know, oh, we need to hype up this Cold War language, this us versus them, us versus the terrorists. You're either with us or with the terrorists. I think he once said... Uh, you know, maybe we have to ramp this up, but we have, like, even if we did that, we have to recognize the very real possibility of how this could backfire. Um, and, uh, and that's just something that maybe wasn't there, or maybe those voices were silenced, uh, that were around Bush at that time. But what you just said about Niebuhr being able to pick out the pitfalls, that's one of the most important parts of Niebuhr's whole idea is having that humility to be able to, to see where you could fail.
2: Absolutely. So- let me just kind of—that was such a great, great comment. I don't—I almost don't even want to respond to it, but I'll—I'll I'll try. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think there's three things that I see that are particularly relevant to what you just said in in Niebuhr, uh, having kind of gone back and looked at him a lot for writing this article. You know, the first is that the, his emphasis on the fact that we are moral actors, right? We make moral choices. We are not born along or forced by the forces of history. Yes. By lots of, right, Because this is the Marxist argument that he saw mm-hmm. so clearly. Mm-hmm. This is the law of history. We have to do this, right? People who resist this great tide must be exterminated, liquidated, right? Because they are historical contradictions, right? I mean, he rejected all that, emphasized moral agency and choice. Um, second is, I can't remember what book it was in. Maybe it was an irony, which I, I don't know if you guys think, I think irony is his masterpiece, but
0: you would Um, i mean it's a it's a very yeah uh
2: you know he emphasizes that our ability to remake other societies is very limited right and that automatically should shape the way you approach foreign affairs and then third he emphasizes you know the importance of being able to see yourself as potentially the villain right that any ideology can become expansionist and aggressive even liberalism Mm -hmm. um that the rest of the world does not see us the way that we see ourselves in the mirror uh you know he talks a lot in irony in other books about american innocence so we've always had this oh. attitude that we were innocent in the world right and he rejects that you know he i think he references the frontier experience he references kind of the early age of american empire in the philippines i don't don't quote me on that but i think mm-hmm. it was in there maybe this is me projecting onto him i think you're right yeah but he certainly rejects the idea that we are this kind of innocent uh neophyte force international politics right and that's that's a kind of moral realism that should ground our policy
0: yeah good uh so and by the way that's what i was channeling I, my yeah. in my in my master's thesis was about uh bush and the, the myth of american innocence um and uh and how that was used in his speeches um but but anyway uh so back to the article for a second um who exactly is moyn's Cold War liberal, and and why is he arguing um, that that they are not someone to be imitated? That they need to, we need to kind of mit- mitigate their influence on today. Like who who are these people?
2: Yeah, so his archetypical Cold War liberal, and you know, he talks about Trilling, uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb, Hannah Arendt, who he acknowledges is not really a liberal, right? Who's very hard to categorize. Berlin. Um, Berlin Judas uh, a couple others. And basically his Cold War liberals are people who were on a more progressive intellectual trajectory until the Cold War happened, and they kind of decided that they kind of decided that the Cold War and totalitarianism and world war meant that liberalism was had leaned way too close to this what he calls an anti-canon, right? Cannon, canon, uh, C-A-N-O-N, canon. Hmm. That goes back to like Rousseau and this form of the Enlightenment in which you could theoretically make a perfect society, right? That human beings were rational, right? And, and basically these Coldwell liberals looked back at the liberal tradition and said, we need to scrap this whole thing, right? We need to abandon all of that because that's what led to totalitarianism, right? Hmm. A kind of mix of Rousseauian uh romanticism plus enlightenment, hyper-rationalism. That's what got us, the Soviets, that's what got us Nazis yeah. and so on, right? And so he says that these figures invented a totally new canon for liberalism, which I don't think is a new canon at all. I think it's just an alternative canon, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was all about sin, right? All about the limits of human beings, human frailty, right? That whenever we move into mass politics, we start on this slippery slope to authoritarianism. Uh, and so he says that they became extremely pessimistic about domestic reform. They became, uh, you know, the stalwart cold warriors who believe that, that anything just was justified in, in limiting Soviet power. That ultimately they put liberalism on a bad trajectory. They kind of lowered its ambitions, right? They made it think that it couldn't really solve social problems and that, you know, he says that liberals ever since have been in the shadow and we need to come out from under it to have a more positive vision. I think that's the summary of the argument. I hope he would find that to be fair, um, although I don't well, think it's I, fair. I,
0: I think I kind of have a, a follow up to that. So, uh, is this is this your word or Moines Where you call it an anti-canon versus? That's uh, his word. That's his word. Okay. I
2: like. I think it's a really useful word.
0: Okay, that is a useful word, and I, yeah, I I found that that way of phrasing it's uh, really interesting. About the, uh, these people have an anti-canon Rousseau Hegel Marx. Um are yeah, acting as the foils, and then you say like later on, um, the, more of the pro-canon consolidated around like Locke and Adam Smith, um, yeah. thus turning liberalism more into what you you call kind of a, a libertarianism, mm-hmm. um, or is that his term too? Is is he?
2: That's his term, but I just okay. think that's fundamentally inaccurate. I mean, I, I you know <laughs> he he draws on that new canon, right? Locke, Smith, more Scottish Enlightenment. Right. And then basically says that the uh, the end result of that was Hayek. But okay. you, there's no teleology that takes you from those thinkers to Hayek. Right. Right. So I'll, and that's kind
0: of what I was going to ask. Yeah. Do you think that he's kind of superimposing these really neat uh, canons uh, on on the thinkers like Berlin, Aaron, um, Trilling? Yeah. Or, or do you think that that's a fair assessment of how they came to understand uh, liberalism?
2: yeah i mean it's it's fair to some extent i think it's his best argument is about the reinvention of the liberal tradition hmm. right so like he, he shows pretty definitively that they rejected the you know Rousseau, hegel marx lineage right a more progressive lineage which you know in i'm not an expert on 19th century liberalism but it is actually in, in my understanding of it fairly accurate that a lot of these figures were tied into liberal causes at the time right like yeah. i don't think marx was considered. This anti-liberal figure in the 19th century. Uh, that's my very limited understanding of it.
4: Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: Right? But he hit Moyne's argument is that this tradition was reinvented in a very binary way, right? Like kind of either on this pro-freedom trajectory um, that was much more associated with the United States and Great Britain, or you're on this more continental anti-freedom trajectory, right? So, for example, with Popper and uh, the Open Side of his enemies, I think Moyne is pretty accurate in the way he portrays popper in this very binary intellectual intellectual lineage but the problem is that none of these liberals really gave up on social reform right none of them gave up on justice right they lowered their ambitions but you know within what you know a lowered uh horizon yeah horizon 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 whatever yeah (laughs) (laughs) there's tons of room for ambitious reform and you know this was the period of arguably the most ambitious liberal reformism in American history.
0: Well, right, That's, and and, and like recognize. reading this, like I was just wondering: is he basically simplifying who they are to kind of prop up a straw man to tear them down later? Are they more, uh, I guess, complicated than just these two clean cannons that they're working from? Because I definitely, um, and just like you, like nineteenth century, early twentieth century thinkers. I'm not uh, uh, nearly enough refined in my thinking about them uh, uh, than than a lot of people, a lot of experts in that time. So I don't know if that's fair or not. But I know what Niebuhr is, and I know that, that would be very unfair to paint Niebuhr uh, with that brush with, with just totally you know, yeah. the 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 you know these. This is the lane of Niebuhr, so it's really easy to tear that down.
2: Well, let me give a you know a, a fair representation of his argument right so like at one point he talks about i can't remember which thinker he's talking about but one of the cold war liberals was looking back at mill and reinvented mill as this neo libertarian and totally ignored the fact that mill had actually kind of socialist leaning views right mm-hmm. and of course that mill was all over the place mm-hmm. right and you know one wants to draw out more of the emancipatory uh aspects of John Stuart mill as well as his more socialist leanings Absolutely, totally fair, right? Mm-hmm. That that was a selective reading of John Stuart Mill. The cultural liberals did, but on the other hand, I think you know to to get at what you were saying a second ago, my one of my biggest beefs with this with this book is that it's kind of a brains on sticks intellectual history, mm-hmm. right? This is what liberals were saying. This is what sorry. This is what a faction of liberals was saying. What were they doing, mm. right? What they were doing was incredibly ambitious. New Deal, Great Society, Fair Deal, liberal international order, right? What what explains that, mm. right? Why it, it's not in the book, and I think Niebuhr helps us get at that that contradiction a little bit. Um, it would have made for a much stronger book to address that head on.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I'm just curious. Is it is this? I, I know Moyne is a serious scholar, but is yeah, absolutely. Is, is that is this uh, more of a pop level articulation of his uh, more uh, fleshed out ideas, or is this? I don't know. I, d- I don't want to draw a caricature. No, I don't
2: think it's pop level at all because it, it okay. it's a short book, but it, it will take you some time to read. I mean, it, you are kind of wading through some, some denser okay. intellectual history. Um, so it's, it's he's not kind of done.
0: without excuse on these uh on on this kind of heads on sticks uh <laughs> caricature a yeah. little bit. Okay. just to just to add to that i didn't want to
1: jump in but the uh uh, you know one of the ironies that i saw in even reading this is you know you pointed out that Moyne is a non-resident of the quincy institute and we all we all had a chance we had a chance to interview uh andrew basevich like cliff said and we you know we, we interviewed him on his uh introduction or preface to the irony of American history and in 2008 he said that it was the greatest book on American foreign policy yeah and, and he and then we asked him again and he said it still is the greatest book on American
2: yeah.
1: foreign policy and so there there's definitely an irony there that do they, is, they talk what was that do they talk yeah no I, I was I, I, well well you know they, they have a lot of
0: similarities
1: but yeah well but mm-hmm. But I would love, I would love to, I would love to be in the in the room to hear uh, how Bešević and Moyne might resolve that because, like you said, Moyne excludes Niebuhr from his uh, his review. Yeah. And I, I was curious uh, if you had any thoughts on that. Um, I don't know how if you've read Basevich or anything like that, but
2: oh, I mean, I've read six or seven of his books. Uh, I, I I think he's a you know a key scholar, though. I actually think some of his critiques have gone a little over. over- a little excessive but um you know in in the book moyn says that he just wants to highlight thinkers who have been less prominent right and obviously nevers i think more prominent than most people he talks about in the book and that's it's interesting um but on the other hand I, I can't help but feel like it does dodge the strongest cold war thinker and the one who you know if you want a more restrained foreign policy and you want to challenge kind of naive universalistic thinking I don't know if there's a better source to go to right yeah so why not go there and- well you
0: know, I I have noticed, and more on that in a second because I, I do want to yeah, talk yeah. about the omission after Aaron's question and 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 uh, but uh just a follow-up to that um you ba- you basically make the argument that Mo is trying to kind of flip-flop Barack Obama a little bit uh, from what Obama does on the domestic side to the to the in- yeah. international side but uh I couldn't help but notice the base of it did talk like that I don't know if you picked up on that, Zach, but I it talked like, like what, sir? Uh, Talked like that where he wanted to kind of flip flop Barack Obama, um, uh, the domestic and foreign policy becoming more. He seemed more. Um, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. He he seemed he seemed to champion more restraint internationally, um, which I thought which I thought was interesting, um, and maybe it's just uh, from his experience and kind of the the wonderful you know academic career that he has especially in his response to iraq i wonder if a lot of that is because he mentioned it several times that you know that he's afraid that we're you know we aren't um remembering the lessons of iraq and ukraine and i do think that he he did say on the record that he thinks biden is doing a good job and being measured and things like that in ukraine but uh, but anyway, I I did notice it's it I didn't even realize Zach that they're they are both there at the Quincy Institute, but I do see some similarities between them.
1: Well, but there's also definitely an irony that you know it's exactly what he wants, and I think his art, you know, your article obviously argues that that hey, you're, the thing you're looking for is right here, you know, um, you know yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
3: This is He's I guess about Obama
2: I'm... a little bit, but I, no, keep going, yeah. It,
3: do you want to say something? Uh, well,
2: I, I, Obama is really interesting figure to bring in here because you know, oh, yeah. uh, obviously he's kind of famous as a fan of Niebuhr. You, you guys might might know James Kloppenberg's book, "Reading Obama," right? Yeah, I know of it. I haven't read it though. But okay, it yeah. talks a lot about Obama's, I mean, intellectual heritage and pragmatism and the the Niebuhr and other people. Um, you know, what's kind of interesting about it is that Obama's always drawn into this conversation that American foreign policy is liberal hegemonic. And there's very little acknowledgement that, he, I mean, how many messes did he inherit, right? I mean, he inherited a overextended foreign policy and had right. to man- deal with that, right? He did not get a blank slate, mm-hmm. and was responding to events as he went. Lose-lose situations, you know. I th- that's where I kind of jump off the it train mm-hmm. uh, in his critique of Obama. But anyway, that's.
0: I think that's. I think that's a valid point. Yeah, absolutely. That he didn't. He didn't get us into those wars. I guess. Yeah. So this you you make a point about this in the article and you brought it up a little bit ago um but it's fascinating that moin kind of blatantly omits niebuhr from the book um and i say blatantly because niebuhr obviously had a huge influence on cold war liberalism uh and you i think rightly called uh, niebuhr its most profound uh thinker quote unquote so the omission it's not terribly inconspicuous um and I I wonder if intentional, um, you know I've done research. I know if you're missing someone, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. you, my advisor kills me, you know, and we can't read minds. But you know he yeah. he's a hard guy to miss. Um, so follow me here. When you leave uh the elephant in the room out of the room you're critiquing, it's hard not to think Moyne is trying to kind of address the elephant obliquely without risking a response from the elephant. So, uh, you know, let let me, okay, let let me drop the metaphors and clean this up a little bit. Uh, It seems that leaving out Niebuhr, he still wants to kind of attack Niebuhr, but doesn't want to deal with the nuances that would undermine his critique of Cold War liberalism. Hmm. Do you think that that's uh, a fair critique of Moyne?
2: That may be the case. I mean, he, he, you no, know, I've not read everything he's written. I haven't read, he has a book on human rights that I still want to read, not The Last Utopia, but the, the one that followed it. So I don't know how, how directly he's dealt with Niebuhr in other places. He had like an essay version of this book that I don't think, I think it mentioned him once and didn't really talk about him. It It's hard not to come to that conclusion, right? That it's just convenient to not talk about Niebuhr. I would be fascinated to see what he has to say about it. Um in a podcast in an essay whatever uh you know one thing that i thought was an omission in this book that would have really helped pin the argument down is if you'd extended it into vietnam Mm. right so like in vietnam would be the 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 ultimate test for cold war liberals and it's in fact where cold liberalism kind Mm. of fell apart right and born from the ashes was neoconservatism but you know, Niebuhr famously opposed Vietnam. He said it is an unnecessary war and therefore an unjust war, right? He mm-hmm. criticized U.S. conduct in the in the conflict as well. Some Cold War liberals supported it. And obviously, you know, neoconservatives emerged from, you know, criticism of the anti-war movement and believing the United States needed to kind of commit overseas to containing communism everywhere. And so if he had kind of taken these six thinkers and said, what, what did they do during Vietnam? Did they just apologize for whatever the United States did no matter what? that would bolster his case. Mm-hmm. Or did they did they critique, right? Did they say we need, you know, Schlesinger, I think he kind of jumped off the Vien- Vietnam bandwagon pretty early. Uh, you know, did they have a conscience or were they just apologists for power? That mm-hmm. would have really brought this argument home, mm-hmm. and it's it's not there.
1: Do you think it's possible, you know, we've had uh Matthew Anderson on our podcast. He's a doctoral student in the UK, and he he argues that basically, uh, and I think we we were slightly convinced um, that he, he argues that really Niebuhr shouldn't be categorized as a really a Christian realist thinker. And maybe even, you know, I mean, obviously he's a he's a liberal thinker, but there's something kind of unique about his standpoint and that it, it falls in kind of a Hebra, he Hebraic prophetic tradition. Um, and maybe in that sense, maybe Moyne rightly excludes him because he's kind of an outlier. Um, and maybe Cliff, you could expand upon that. I mean just the the how how um, how anderson's position varies from christian realism
0: yeah so on the podcast we we have this push and pull always of was Niebuhr a realist Is he an IR a realist and yeah and for really important reasons he's not uh really important reasons though he should be a part of it so it's kind of <laughs> like M- moyn could be using our own critique against us a little bit uh on this because yeah, we wouldn't want we're not we wouldn't be totally comfortable including Niebuhr on a list that, you know, includes all those names and saying they're all doing the same thing. Um, so in that sense, it's kind of fair to leave him out. So that's that's a good point, Zach. But at the same time, you know, uh, he offers something that they all took from in that time uh, that that uh, and they all I, that, that many of them, especially Berlin, I know. Uh, uh gathered a lot of their wisdom from uh is from this Niebuhr guy so we can't discount him either
2: yeah i i, I would not say he's an outlier compared to the six thinkers profile in this book i mean i think they maybe some of them became neoconservatives right like himmel farb mm-hmm. uh but you know my understanding is that neoconservatives are not you know coke brother libertarians right i mean they many yeah. of them still were were perfectly fine with a basic welfare state Mm-hmm. And you know most of these figures in the fifties continued to be basically New Dealers,
4: mm-hmm.
2: and so N- Niebuhr's I mean, I, my understanding of Niebuhr's is that he criticized New Deal, New Deal from the left, mm-hmm. right? For not going yeah, far big enough. time. So yeah, so the the, um, the New
0: Deal was something he came around to accepting. Yeah, yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in that respect, I, I I think niebuhr you know belongs in that conversation, and, and of course I think that's fair. the recognition of communism's threat and and the evil of the soviet union
0: yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good question though zach i mean that, that that would be a good question to ask him like why did he leave Niebu- Niebuhr out and was he thinking along those lines but i'm not sure that that's the reason why he's leaving them out uh <laughs> but but yeah um zach uh, wh- oh was that your next question zach yeah that was my question <laughs> oh wait is, i'm am i up again mm-hmm. i'm up again okay um so this one i'm kind of reading between the lines a little bit here, Joseph. Um, so, despite kind of citing others, you know, in your in your piece, who argue that there are still virtues to be salvaged from Cold War liberalism, it seems like you kind of more or less are granting or uh, acquiescing to Moyne's more general point about these specific liberals that he's addressing, um, to a degree at least. But you're taking exception with Niebuhr. Um, now, p- putting two and two together here, would you say that a, a future U.S. liberalism involves Niebuhr explicitly as a more central figure, um, or do you, or you know, and to, or would you go further and say, you know he should be, and we need to take steps of maybe making Niebuhr more central in these further discussions because he because he can fit and still speak to some of these issues whereas some of maybe the other uh cold war liberalisms uh more the older other cold war liberals would maybe practice too much restraint or something like that is Niebuhr an exception that's worth you know hitching your wagon to
2: he is i think the best version of a broader movement that i think is still very worthwhile
0: interesting
2: right that's that's the best way i could put it so like for example uh the concept of berlin's concept of negative and positive liberty Right. I, I still think that's incredibly useful, both as a concept and even as a policy guide. Right. Um, you know, mm-hmm. Moyn and, and many other progress. I just finished Greg Grandin's book. Right. We make a very similar argument. Right. That the United States never became a social democracy. We never developed the concept of social and economic rights, which would be more the kind of I think would be more the kind of the positive liberty element. Right. In Berlin's mm-hmm. argument. But one thing they never recognize is positive liberty is expensive right? Positive liberty means, you know, the creation of programs in which someone has to be the loser, right? Someone has to pay up for those programs. And I'm not, I, I I'm, you know, I'm a liberal Democrat, I'm generally in favor of a fairly expansive uh, role for the state. But there's a fundamental difference in those things, right? And our our political tradition has been much more focused on negative liberty, right? Because of our skepticism of concentrated power, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. uh, you know, to go to your question of what, what should today's liberalism take away from you, how can we build on him? Is that kind of what you want to get at?
0: Yeah, and if, like, if he's the the glaring exception to maybe some of these uh, Cold War liberals, where Moyne might actually have a point, um, is does he kind of uh, stand alone, not stand alone, but is he uh, maybe a more um, exemplifiable figure <laughs> than some of the older, uh, the other Cold War liberals?
2: Yeah, and let me let me give three reasons why I think he is right. So, the first is his his arguments about self righteousness. It's a constant theme in his in his books, you know, starting with Moral Man and Moral Society or Moral Man and Immoral Society, mm-hmm. um, especially the self righteousness of groups and nations and how it can distort and lead to horrible things. Um, I think one of the great weaknesses of contemporary liberalism, but especially the further you go out onto the left, has been self righteousness. I mean, yes how many gosh darn books are there about left-wing identity politics and how harmful they've been from liberals, right? It, it's exhausting how many books there are. It's
0: feeding the right, too. I mean, it's... It is,
2: right? Absolutely. That's what's right.
0: animating Trumpism to a, a, a great extent.
2: And so a Niburian sense of, you know, self-interrogation, right? Uh, limit Human frailty would be a nice dose, I think, for that, that mm. tendency. Right? Second would be uh, you know, so, so, um, you know, Judas scholars, this concept of the liberalism of fear, right? That liberalism was all about just preventing, sorry, Cold War liberalism was all about just preventing evils instead of building something good. I would say that especially in the international realm, just preventing evils is hard. That's a lot, right? Preventing Ukraine from being swallowed up by Russia is very ambitious. Right. Uh, you know, I always think about the Persian Gulf War, right? 400,000 U.S. troops, a massive coalition, right, to save this tiny little nation and to deter aggression. Uh, after the war, we all said, oh, why didn't we remove some? i saying, you know, what we did was a huge accomplishment. So in the international sphere, I think it's way, it's often wise to think about what evils can we, can we prevent. Um, and then third, I think one of the things I like about Niebuhr, and this is another thing I, I think is a link between his ideas and Martin Luther King's ideas, hmm. that he didn't reject our history, he recast it, hmm. right? So, like, so much of the modern left is just about a rejection of our history, right? The mm-hmm. 1619 Project being the leading uh, aspect of this. But it, it's all over academic history, right? Yeah. That I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. In a rhetorical sense, Niebuhr and King and Obama have been so effective at recasting our history, mm-hmm. right, and saying we need to draw on this tradition and update nice. it and change it and critique it. There are things we can reject and put away, right? That's a style that lends itself to humility, but is also way more appealing to kind of go back to this whole yeah. point about messaging. <laughs> um, I'm going to shout out Josh Cherniss's book, um, um, Liberalism in the '50s. He kind of profiles like Camus and Iran and like more European figures, but that's a sen- that's a big part of his argument is the liberal style in that period, not necessarily like the ideas.
0: We had a uh, a German scholar on our program recently, Josephine Graf, uh, who's doing stuff on um, memory uh, and uh, Niebuhr, uh, innocence, that type of thing, with uh, far right, uh, white yeah, white supremacy and things like that. And,
2: do, they
0: like, uh, do they like him too? What's that? Do they like him too? Oh, <laughs> the <no>. white supremacists. <laughs> the white supremacists don't like Niebuhr. They, okay, I've I'll, I'll never heard to say. of him. No, but Josephine <laughs> uh, is applying Niebuhr. She's actually working at a think tank right now in D.C., um, and her research is on applying Niebuhr to uh, to critiquing um, uh, the right, the far right and uh, critiquing the people that, you know, uh, give aid and comfort to them, I guess. But, um, and a lot of it is revolving around memory and the way that you're talking about how kind of recasting history. Um, and we had a great discussion with her. So shout, shout out to Josephine and also to our listeners. Go back and listen to that because we cool. talked the Holocaust. We talk um, really about how the German identity is composed by this narrative um, and how is how important it is to recast history, but also to remember, remember the bad and, and the good and to have this com- complicated relationship with history um, and how important that is. But uh, yeah, shout out to her and, and for our listeners, go go back and, and check that out. But uh, but yeah.
3: Well, I guess my last question before I have to dip is you've mentioned the, this relationship between narrative and, and part of the appeal, I guess, to M- Moyne is recapturing um a rationale for achieving sort of positive ends like recapturing reason for these for these goals um more i guess like an optimistic enlightenment project yeah. might be similar um but now we're bringing in more of like a postmodern like narrative that, that we have to recognize there are these sorts of, you know, irrational, we might say, or ideological t- t- taints in, in the way we conceive of our identities, of our groups and our relations domestically and, and internationally. So, uh, Joseph, what, how would you say for liberals who, if you, you know, if you talk to a lot of liberals, uh, like a, a from a, a, a MAGA perspective or, you know, whatever, Tea Party perspective, they'll be like, well, you, you know, you're just, not thinking clearly you know you're not you're not you're not being rational just think about it is the kind of retort you'll hear from a liberal how do we how do we tap into cold war liberalism by being and also being mindful of the relation between reason and narrative
2: Hmm. that's interesting um and i think in terms of narrative and identity one place that liberals often fall short is the idea that you have to kind of reject your identity community and upbringing to achieve progress, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, I, for example, was you know raised in kind of the Catholic social justice tradition. I went to all boys Catholic school. I'm a I'm a I'm a very lats Catholic, but uh, you know, we love them. <laughs> but but I think you know I went through kind of a phase of being. This is going to be a very end around way of answering the question, if if it even answers your question at all. But, like, I went through kind of a phase of, you know, becoming liberal, becoming quite secular, and just being like, oh, my Catholic upbringing was such a horrible influence on me, right? I can't believe people taught me all this nonsense. And then as I came around and kind of settled in my later 20s, early 30s, and, you know, read people like Niebuhr, you know, became very close friends with some people who were, who were Catholic and Christian, you know, I started to say, well, but like, why, why am I a liberal? Right. All my teachers, they steeped me in this Catholic social justice tradition in solidarity and, you know, um, subsidiarity. Right. All these great concepts that clearly are foundational to the way I think about the world um, in responsibility to others. Right. In, in kindness and opposing cruelty and so on. You know, I couldn't quite separate this up. And sometimes I feel like. The further you get on the left, the more, you know, if you want to achieve progress, you have to throw all the stuff away, right? All this supposedly uh-huh. benighted stuff. And that's the approach that many people take to American history, right? You know, tear on every statue of every person who could remotely be considered problematic. Uh, you know, sixteen nineteen type pro- oh the real founding of America is the first slave who came to you know, who was who was brought to the new uh-huh. world, which uh-huh. you know makes no sense. Um uh-huh it's 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 simply doomed to fail right like you're only going to get a very small slice of the population probably of the overeducated population to jump onto that narrative and so you have to find a way to kind of say you know what are the parts of the American past we can build on parts of American identity we can build on right how do you push people without alienating them um and then of course how do you celebrate accomplishments like sometimes I feel like Someone like Moyne, and I don't want to put words in his head, but would look back and say, oh, what a you know, what an unbelievable disaster things have been in the last 50, 60 years. Well, I mean, how about gay marriage, right? I mean, if you're a liberal, that's a huge accomplishment. No one thought that was possible 20 years ago. No one, right? right? Not even, you know, uh gay and lesbian lawyers organizations thought that was possible, right? The new the welfare state has not gone away. In fact, it continues to get bigger and bigger. Um, it, you know, I, I think when we refuse to celebrate our accomplishments or we say that they're nothing, then we just hand power over to the extremists, right? Who can say, well, nothing's been achieved, right? Yeah. I mean, how much of the great society is still essentially in place, yeah. right? I mean, that's an enormous accomplishment. And all that has, a lot of historians have to say about it is, well, why didn't we do more at the time? Look at the context. Look at the constraints that were on those actors, right? I mean, it, it was. A, sometimes I feel like I'm going way off base here, but I sometimes it, I feel right, like, yeah, like the argument of progressives is if we just get the right conceptualization of politics, we can do all this stuff. Wrong, right? You need the moment. You need all these things to align. You know, uh, think about how the Democrats dominated Congress in the early 1960s that's the only right and yeah. then as soon as they did civil rights reform their coalition fell apart there's just yeah. never a blank slate yeah and I think that one of the things I like about Niebuhr is that you know he recognized that the Soviet Union tried to create a social blank slate
0: yeah.
2: and that just was horrible. I mean I, you know, I have to tell you guys that that was just horrible
3: my my point was how do we make modern liberals see that <laughs> you know how do we, yeah. how do, how does, the, how do the neighbors win?
1: Another solution, you know, maybe we go door to door and just say, you know, have you heard the good news?
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. Zach is okay. always plugging Sabella's book. He's
3: also like, just, it's a great book. He's also going down people's chimneys and putting them in their stockings. <laughs> as well, I literally have,
4: I literally,
1: dollars on 30 copies.
4: Yeah. yeah
0: but, uh, yeah. Well, um, I have one more question. Let's do it. If you like, since this is, halloween themed he's leaving in keeping with the october interviews we did this last year also i will ask this a very spooky question the year is 1945 summer of 1945 japan is not surrendering three people enter into the oval office a general a scientist and a warlock They all sit down with Truman and starts discussing how to finally end this war. The General says, Sir, the option I have for you is a D-Day style land invasion of the Japanese homeland. Mass casualties will re- result, both citizen and soldier. Truman nods his head and says, OK, thank you. He then looks to the scientists. What do you have? The scientist says, Sir, let me introduce to you something called the Manhattan Project. Describes the absolute destruction of entire cities. Things, we, the power we have now, radiation poisoning, hundred, you know, hundreds of thousands of civilians wiped off from the earth in an instant. Um, something Truman can't even bring himself to imagine. They go over the numbers of possible casualties alongside the general's proposal. Truman's just shaking his head. I need a better option. And then he pounds his fist on the table. So then he turns to the warlock. The warlock says, sir, I come to you from another secret research facility. The Staten Island Project. This one is this one is researching spells. I have come up with a spell where by the wave of a wand, this jewel in my hand will pinpoint leaders in Japan, specifically the Emperor himself, without anybody knowing. That will turn them in all into werewolves and they will immediately start devouring one another. Oh. Minimum civilian casualties. No one else in the world will know. We have this weapon. We could rule the world with this. Truman rocks back in his chair and says, someone get me Niebuhr. Double doors open up to a smoky oval office and Niebuhr walks in and he's presented with this choice between the nuke and the spell. Whichever he doesn't use is immediately destroyed. Which does Niebuhr choose?
4: This is oh, for both of
0: you. This is for both of you. <laughs> Zack, you first. Oh, I mean, obviously the spell. why? less casualties. but think of the power the united states would have and the world wouldn't even know it. that is unchecked power. at least with the nuke there's a mushroom cloud everybody knows around the world what's happening. russia thinks that it can get its hands on this. the spell you could eliminate it completely get rid of this jewel that has this secret power and it's gone. so you're eliminating the nuclear weapon from ever existing
2: ever not
0: Right, so whichever one you don't choose gets destroyed and the history of the world never has it. I don't
1: know, Neva didn't have very good things to say about nukes. I think that uh, I'd be shocked.
0: You yeah, know, he, knew- he, oh. he actually said the dropping of the nuke was in itself an immediate deterrent. Um, so that if once Russia gets it, there is an, his article is about how is actually Kennan says that it's the first, I think it's Kennan says it's the first um, published article on nuclear deterrence, but, uh, <laughs> but, nucle, but uh, Niebuhr uh, argues that, you know, we, we shouldn't have done it. There's maybe a better way that we could have done this, maybe dropped one off the coast of Japan or something like that, but he says, but the fact that we did it sends a message of the destruction and that maybe we can, you know, th- this is, the world is on notice now. If it ever comes up again, if the Russians get their mitts on this thing, there's a deterrent there that we won't do it. So it could lead to better things. Oh, it might help
2: lead to like collective control or a like, the Baruch. I,
1: I think, Yeah, I would say also, I think that even though I know it goes against almost like everything you read of Niebuhr, I still think he had a, uh, there's still, I, I I still think from, at least from what I've read, though he criticizes the uh, the innocence or the belief in our own innocence and it's uh, on and on and on and on, and you know, has all these criticisms, I still think that Niebuhr had a uh, a lingering belief in American exceptionalism or a lingering belief in American goodness. And I think that he would probably favor that over just kind of giving ever, like putting that out there to everyone that their nuclear weapons are available.
0: You know what I mean? Like, like he, I, I think he would- So he would still favor the warlock spell is what yeah. you're saying. And that we would secretly have this spell. Just people are becoming, you know, like, you know, the shot like the Iran. The Iranian government is like becoming a bunch of werewolves. Nobody knows why. And only we know <laughs> that, that that's pure speculation
1: on my part. Just I mean, I, I just would guess that he's there's still that, you know, uh, you know, he's from America. He's, he, he's vying he on that we should
2: the American government has all this power. Here's my take. I don't know what Niebuhr would say exactly. I, I do know what Moyn would say because of his book Humane. He would argue that the werewolf spell, which only turns leaders.
0: Yes. Into, you, can, right? you can pinpoint who it infects. Yeah. So
2: he would argue, given his book Humane, that that would make war more of a temptation because it makes war mm. easier and clean, or at least creates yeah. illusions doing that. Right?
1: Exactly. And Niebuhr would, I think Niebuhr would say the same thing. I think that's a better answer than mine.
2: No, because i think niebuhr realizes that there are tragic situations where there's where use of force is the best of a bunch of a series of bad uh, yeah. options yeah and that's not in Moyne's book right so there's no how do we deal with the islamic state without use of force right like it's just well right. there's this temptation if we keep droning people
0: well that's what's scary about i guess i would i didn't i didn't think about this when i was writing this ridiculous question but that's that's kind of the risk we have before us with uh cyber warfare at what point uh at what because it's it's all under wraps like like it's so secretive it's so ambiguous like what is an attack uh at what point does this uh deem retaliation you know at what point do, do we need to retaliate maybe physically against somebody and not just in cyberspace i don't know like that's kind yeah. of akin to the werewolf uh spell and that we can have you guys ever seen zero days the documentary about yeah. uh, it's about stuxnet wow, uh the cool. the computer virus that disrupted the iranian nuclear program uh and it was just these computer scientists like talking about their discovery of this thing and they're like who could have made this this virus and come to find out it's probably came from israel and and the pentagon is you know is like the two places where they located it from but we can do some we will be able to do some horrifying things some some someday through cyber warfare and uh and there's not going to be a mushroom cloud with that and yeah. there's a lot of risks that come with that so it's true All i like right. his answer for the moon okay that's enough. And you guys chime in. You guys, uh, you guys are still listening. Uh, uh, chime in uh, in the comments and let us know what, what you think Niebuhr would do or what you would do. Um, all right. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of the Love by Niebuhr podcast. I want to thank again, our guest, uh, Dr. Uh, Joseph Stieb for joining us. And I want to thank you, the listener for tuning in. Make sure you like, and subscribe, write us a good review. If you're enjoying it and follow us on Twitter slash X at Love Thy Neighbor for uh news and updates. And while you're there, drop us a couple bucks in the tip jar. Thank you all so much for listening. Take care everybody and stay safe out there.